What's up, everybody, and welcome to Theory Underground. I'm your host, David McCarricker, and today we are joined by a co-host. Welcome, Nance. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. Absolutely great. Killer. And uh, today we're going to be talking to you all about uh, Heidegger's not Nazism. I get our, this idea that the video won't even be shown to people because we're saying the word actually has me wondering. I don't think that's true. I think that's only true if you're a really big streamer. I think if you're a small streamer, it's probably fine. Like it, you'll all probably still see this come up in your um, notifications. But of course, I did add an asterisk over the uh, the A just to kind of hopefully, I don't know. I just don't really know what the rules are. I, if anyone does, let us know in the comment section. But it doesn't really matter. Heidegger had politics, questionable to say the least. Um, <laughs> and it's actually a, a, a subject of controversy in the field that has been now for a long time. Back in the day before there was a lot of evidence um, to the degree to which he was um, not just opportunistically in terms of his career um, affiliated with the Nazi party, but also, you know, in his bones, a real national socialist um, or a German supremacist or an anti-Semite. Uh, such questions have in large part been answered, but before they were answered, people like Georg Lukács, um, Habermas, uh, Bordeaux, uh, various tendencies of sockdom to radical uh, communist leftist type of dismissals of his work were already rampant, um, even though a lot of them were profoundly impacted by being in time, right? A lot of them assume a lot of the things from being in time, um, but then of course are scathing critics of uh, Heidegger's politics. But then there are also liberal interpreters, and liberal interpreters because they're open-minded and they like viewpoint diversity and because they're just fundamentally anti-communist anyway, um, to them, they just read him and they're like, okay, he was naive. He was politically naive. He sold out to something that was terrible. He might not have known how bad it was. And he was probably in a lot of denial about it after the fact. Uh, but that's all separable from his political Oh, sorry, from his actual pure ontology, his pure philosophy, and his existentialism. These are things that are inherently valuable. Um, discoveries, innovations, contributions to the field. Um, and so the liberal standpoint has been one of downplaying and dismissing the political aspect while definitely focusing on the most valuable aspect. And the leftist tendency has been to focus on the political aspect uh, while usually downplaying and dismissing the philosophical aspect. And uh, we're here to tell you today that we do not take either of these standard approaches to Heidegger interpretation. And um, what else are we here to talk about, Nance? Um, yeah, I, th I think kind of getting prepared to engage with being in time um, and not not leaving any wiggle room, like um, forcing the confrontation um, and tarrying with those contradictions and figuring it out rather than just trying to like sidestep it 
um, or like assume shit from it while also pretending like we're not assuming anything from it and, and like just getting rid of it whole cloth. Right. And I did say for anybody who watched my ha- uh, why uh, I have a, a playlist on Heidegger on YouTube. You can ch- always check it out. Um, it's got four lectures in it right now. These are pre-course lectures. Uh, if you go to the front page of my YouTube, you'll see uh, one is called Why You Shouldn't Read Being in Time Even Though I Hope You Will, uh, which is basically you shouldn't commit to something that's a huge commitment unless you're serious. Um, but I also go into other reasons why I think it's important to read this text. The next one is three reasons we're reading being in time this summer. I did that with Nick Casalucci of the vanishing mediators. Um, and then I did a Heidegger versus traditional philosophy of science and Heidegger on the three major discoveries of phenomenology and his radical critique of Husserl. Both of those also with Nick Casalucci. Um, but he's a busy, busy guy who works full time and I really wanted to do some more Heidegger prep and I've spent the last six months going more intensively down this rabbit hole into Heidegger's politics and really trying to figure out what is the relation between the politics and the pure ontology. And uh, part of this is because I owe a tremendous debt to Heidegger, but also I want to think through for myself um, the influence and everything like that. Um, But also because I just know that new evidence has come out as far as all of this goes. And I wanted to figure out, like, was that always in his work? Was that just later? Um, and, and, And to what degree was it there? Uh, to what degree is this being overstated by people who just want to downplay, dismiss, and not take seriously one of the greatest, most profound, difficult, fresh, and distinct philosophers of the 20th century? Because um, personally, I don't even think that you can unlock Derrida, Foucault, Levy, Sartre, etc., without getting what did he offer? Being in Time and Das Kapital are the two greatest critiques of modernity and liberalism from the history of thought. We are products of liberalism and modernity. Therefore, if we want to get critical distance on our own positions, we have to pass through its two greatest critics. One was a communist, the other was a Nazi. Both of them had a very long and uh, rigorous philosophical critical period that was post-religious. Both of them were like, no, I'm not religious. I'm an atheist, I'm critical. Both of them were trying to do that in their own ways. And both of them, at some point, decided to become anti-philosophical and to try their best to steer a moving ship called history, because history was going. And for Heidegger, it was the work. Sorry, for Marx, it was the workers' movement, and for Heidegger, it was National Socialism. So both of them, a form of socialism. Obviously, the latter being a very opportunistic, nationalist, hyper right-wing appropriation of socialism, but nonetheless, it had adopted the rhetoric of the workers' movement. And both Marx and Heidegger, uh, though they're amazing critics of the things that they are critics of, both of them never really delved deep enough into work versus creation. Heidegger, it's kind of there in the early, uh, early Marx, and it's a parenthetical in the Grundrisse, but it's just never a prolonged, rigorous thing. And 
if it wasn't for these two thinkers, then I would have never come up with time energy theory, which is implicit in both of their work, but it has to be teased out. And by teasing it out, it actually does an imminent critique of both of their projects. And so that's kind of me and where I'm coming from. And because I rely on Marx and Heidegger, people think I'm a red brown. They think, oh, a communist Nazi. No, no. I just think that we have to have a profound and distinct radical rupture from our immediacy, which is liberal and modern. And so we have to have these critics who are those things. Uh, Adam, how's the audio? Let us know how the audio is. We're wearing sunglasses to protect ourselves from having our souls sucked out by internet people. What we're going to do in this video is cover really quickly a few of the important details so that people realize we're not just coming in here to say Heidegger's canceled. We're not just coming in here to say we don't have to take him seriously. I wouldn't be reading Being in Time in a course that I've organized, um, being taught on the platform that I built without some idea that reading Heidegger's Being in Time is one of the most important things for philosophical inquiry in the 21st century. Obviously, I think it's important. Uh, most people who go down Heidegger's politics alley are doing it so they can downplay, dismiss, write off, not take seriously. We're not doing that. But torque matter in the, the live stream comment section for anybody who is uh, watching this after the fact and doesn't have eyes on chat, torque matter says, do people really believe in these silly stories you don't think the intellectual establishment are running rings around you? And yeah, Nance, what is that? What, what do you have here? I just I, I don't know I don't know what they mean by that. Um, and I think it's kind of silly and fun. <laughs> obviously, um. <laughs> obviously, I obviously I think the intellectual establishment is running rings around me. Duh. That's why I've exited academia. Like, what are you talking about? But are you saying that we cannot learn anything from reading um, people who are within that intellectual establishment? And I don't mean taking to heart at face value everything they say, but I'm saying you're saying we can't read across that and figure things out for ourselves. I don't think that's what you're saying, they, but that's kind of what it sounds they like. They might appreciate George Steiner's book if, if that's their kind of <laughs> baseline position. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the chat, Dan. Good to see you, man. Thank you for letting me know that the audio is fine. So speaking of George Steiner, that's this guy. I've got him up on the screen now. Eyes on screen. Look at this guy. Um, oh, actually, shit. I can't do this yet. No. Before I show you all that, I'm going to bring it back to the picture of Anne here. And uh, we actually have to st step back a step further, Nance, than we realized. The thumbnail of this video says, so this happened. And it's an arrow pointing at the thumbnail for a different video, a video that none of you have seen. It is a, it is, uh, it's this one right here. You see that thumbnail, everybody? This is a stream that Nance and I did three days ago. It is called Heidegger in Ruins, in quotes. Heidegger's Nazism matters, not dumb fuck dialectics. And then it, on the screen, for the people not watching, my face is very like, oh no, what the hell? And Nance's is very like laughing, like, like <laughs> this is good. And 
it's like a there's a question mark over my head and an exclamation point over Nance's head, and what we're both re- referencing, which is taking up the majority of the thumbnail frame uh, or, or 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 space, is basically it looks like an addition of being in time, with Martin Heidegger at the top and being in time at the bottom, and in the center is a red, white, and black swastika, and so. That's controversial. It's controversial because people who really like this book and want to think that it's pure ontology and they don't have to think very seriously about the politics uh, would be offended by it. But the question mark over my head has to do with like, okay, but to what degree is this true? Is it true at all? I'm not convinced that it's completely true. Neither is Nance, right? But there is something here. And that the something that is here is what we wanted to get to. Now, in my preparation, going down this rabbit hole so that I could really accelerate everybody else's understanding regarding this question, I read Lukács. I read Bordeaux. I read a lot of these thinkers that I was referencing. I've read a lot of the supplementary essays, articles, and, uh, and books. And the book that I found to be the most useful even though I have my problems with it, is this one right here called Heidegger in Ruins Between Philosophy and and Ideology. I really like that subtitle, Between Philosophy and Ideology, because that really is the question. At what time does he stop being philosophical and become purely ideological? That question is not treated as, as, as rigorously as we would like it for Woolen, but what he does establish is that Heidegger really is between philosophy and ideology. And on 1933, when he does his nature, history, and nature, history, and state, that lecture course is the explicit development of his political ontology, the explicit appropriation of the Being in Time project towards the ends of getting people to believe that the only freedom that matters is consigning oneself to the Fuhrer. Um, that's that's real shit, and none of his later work can be read outside of, uh, you know, you have to think about this. You have to think about nature, history, and state. That lecture course is a really big deal. For the mainstream American Heideggerian um, crowd, mainly you know stemming from Dr. Hubert Dreyfus at UC Berkeley, nature, history, and state wasn't published. It wasn't available. Neither were the Black Notebooks. And so um, his downplay and dismissal is focused on a pragmatic reading of Division One primarily. And he, does, he just doesn't really have much to say about anything else. And he, and he kind of sterilizes Heidegger in a way that Walter Kaufman sterilizes Nietzsche. But as Daniel Tutt's new book is about to show... And as the 800-plus-page tome called Nietzsche, Nietzsche the, the Aristocratic Rebel, also shows, um, Nietzsche was the most profound thinker of anti-communism and anti-leftism from the 19th century, and Heidegger was the most profound um, anti-communist thinker from the 20th century. Not just anti-communist. I mean, that's the thing that he was focused on because Soviet Russia to the east was an imminent threat for Heidegger. But also leftism more broadly. Obviously, he didn't like anarchy either. So, 
oh, well, then that means we should just write them off, right? Well, not if you think that the left does have inherent contradictions that it is incapable of seeing for itself. If the left has inherent contradictions and pitfalls and is caught up in deadlocks that it cannot see in itself, then it actually takes others who have radically different commitments, operating assumptions, values, and goals um, to interpret you to be able to see things that you weren't going to see about yourself. And so for any kind of post-left, anti-left, or leftist disillusion looking for a more uh, multifaceted, multi-perspectival um, critique of everything in existence, including your own most closely held assumptions, this is necessary, right? For someone like Hubert Dreyfus, who's not doing political stuff at all, it's irrelevant. Um, I don't know if he had read Nature, History, and State, if he would have still said it's irrelevant later on. I think that Rick Roderick would have had a huge interest as well in the developments of that lecture course, but this stuff was whitewashed. Uh, th th they didn't know about it. And so um, let me give you a couple of examples, and then we'll come back to those examples because for, I want to show you both sides of the discourse here. So, But a couple of examples of what happens in History, Nature, and State is he starts explicitly dialoguing with, Car uh, with Carl Schmidt. Um, it's in this time that in the Black Notebooks, he reveals that he considers Spangler, Ernst Jünger, and Carl Schmidt to be fraternal allies. And he, in his Nature, History, and State, is talking about rootedness in soil, which is Bodenstandigkeit. This is where he juxtaposes rudeness and, rootedness and soil to the nomadic Semitic peoples. Nomadic Semitic peoples go around destroying everything and being parasitic, whereas the people who are rooted in soil, they're the real humans who are, who are worlded. They actually have something to offer. So this is, this is also where he talks about uh, German Dasein, right? He starts talking about German Dasein, not as individuals, but as a collective. Right, with its own history, and it's the only, it's the only people, uh, ontologically in the position that to be capable of poeticizing being. Okay, now that's all very damning stuff, obviously, but not a lot of people were aware of it. And I want to show you what I was influenced by uh, when I was originally getting into Heidegger. And look, I had a leftist, anarcho-communist. Uh, Kierkegaardian Nietzschean uh, professor telling me that that stuff was really irrelevant. I had Hubert Dreyfus telling me it was irrelevant. Um, Dr. Ian Thompson was a little bit more nuanced, but still, because he's a liberal and not, he doesn't really care about someone being fundamentally anti-communist. Like, that doesn't mean something to him in the same way that it does for us. Um, I, there are, All of their interpretations were, for me, very formative, Right. And I remember chainsawing out in a field like eight years ago, listening to this audiobook from Audible called Martin Heidegger by George Steiner. And I'm going to read you the quote, the, 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 the pivotal quote here. He says, allegations of anti-Semitism are, in respect of the magnitude of the case, trivial, but also, I believe, false. I have been unable to locate anti-Jewish sentiments or utterances in the works of Heidegger, even in those of a public and political nature, a fact which from the outside, outset isolates him from the mainstream of Nazism. So, you know, okay, 
I, what did this guy even read is going to be the question, right? Like what this guy's major is not critical, historical, philosophical studies. He's a poet. And so it's like it's kind of interesting that he wrote this whole book in defense of Heidegger that's bi- giving you a biography of his life. He says that he doesn't tell you what he read. He just says that he's even read public and political things from Heidegger. And there's nothing anti-Jewish in those sentiments. Well, if you read the rectoral address of uh, 1933, I'm pretty sure that that's where you would actually see that, no, Heidegger is, uh, is that where he talks about the need for an internal enemy to be basically scapegoated and and, 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 no. and, and exterminated? I don't think it was in the rectoral address. That was when he talks about the... Um, service that knowledge should be in service to the state rather than the other way around. Um, I think the internal other came from a letter, or I might be making that up. Okay, well that's 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 good enough for now. We that's the question. Those are the kinds of questions that we're working with um, as we go through this book. So so far, if you've been listening to this vid- this this stream up until this point. Um, you know, in a linear progression, then you should realize that we're operating on something that's a little bit more nuanced than the standard ways of dismissing Heidegger. But at the same time, we're, we are critical. And I'm taking what I hear here from George Steiner and running it up against what I hear from uh, Wolin, which is, it's probably Volin. Uh, Richard Woolen. I'll just say Woolen because I don't see that it's translated. If I don't see that it's translated, I'm going to assume he's in the States or England or something like that. And so I'm anglicizing, but he could, it could be Woolen. Anyway, um, the other quote, which is so crucial here, this was formative for me, was this one right here. This was, this was amazing um, because Whenever you hear people talking about, oh, Heidegger, anti-Semitic, I would think of this, this quote. In April 1933, as a way of arguing with the people who are dismissing Heidegger, I think of George Steiner giving this account. He says, in April 1933, Professor von Mullendorf, a social democrat, is prevented from assuming the rectorship of Freiburg University. He, together with his senior colleagues, asks Heidegger to take on the post. His fame may be of salutary use to the university in threatening times. Heidegger belongs to no party and has taken no role whatever in politics. He hesitates but is persuaded. Heidegger is elected rector with only one dissenting vote and begins his term of office in April 20, on the 21st of April. To do so at all is tantamount to becoming a functionary under the new regime. And he joins the National Socialist Party during the first days of May. At the very start of his rectorship, Heidegger prohibits the dissemination of anti-Semitic tracts by Nazi students inside the university building. He forbids a planned book burning of decadent Jewish and Bolshevik works in front of the university and tries to prevent the purge of undesirable volumes from the university library. It is roughly at this point that we come to one of the most notorious items in the entire dossier. And then he goes on to say that Heidegger... That, that people talk about how Heidegger had expelled Edmund Husserl, his former mentor, from the university, but there's actually no evidence for that, and really the two had just drifted apart on philosophical grounds. Um, that's kind of crazy to me because 
Heidegger had already taken, I think, I think he'd already taken over Edmund Husserl's post as the chair of the philosophy department. And then he became rector and let Husserl drift away as Steiner sets it up. But in reality, if you have a mentor or friend who is um, going to be uh, ostracized, marginalized, scapegoated by the regime that you're getting involved with um, because he's Jewish, um, then you, you letting that person drift away is – it's not an accident, right? So this is this is a shameful episode for sure because he really does owe so much to Husserl. Um, and, and so George Steiner here just sets it up like this. And you notice that there's like a lack of citations here. You notice that there's not a single one in this entire paragraph. This is a pretty important paragraph if he's talking about how Heidegger stopped the burning or banning of uh, decadent Jewish or Bolshevik works. Right, he that he stopped the dissemination of anti-Semitic tracts. That's important. I want to know more about that, but Steiner doesn't tell me. And then we made a joke. It, okay, Adam, a regular in the chat and at Theory Underground, was telling Nance before our call here that we went too hard on Steiner. That we were actually bullying. I don't know. He doesn't say bullying, right? But he said that we were we were being assholes. Um, do you want to say anything about that, Nance? Um, yeah, well, and I think I think there was some awareness in the moment, too. Um, and it might have been just a consequence of, of the length of the stream that yeah. we might have got a little silly and goofy. But I, I, I think in the moment, my intentions were um, just to call out the absurdity of this guy who's being presented as such a spectacular, awesome academic who writes the world's best books. Um, and this book is very much not the world's best book. No. Um, and it is kind of absurd that there are people who have written great things and who have great things inside them that hopefully will see the light of day someday, but they work in warehouses or they drive trucks or they pick, pick vegetables in fields. Right. Um, I think we were, we were trying to, you know, contrast those two things. And I do think we, we probably did um, it. make it more personal than we should have, but like we started reading into his intentions and talking about like, mm -hmm. do you think that this guy's just coasting through life, not taking things seriously, playing the game? And then we're looking at this picture, this face in the picture. And, 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 and the, the thing was, is like at the very, at, at first I was like, who is this guy? Well, no, Nance was like, who is this guy? And then, but then Nance starts doing like this whole like, well, maybe he just doesn't know. And maybe, you know, I bet he's a really smart guy. And and he and Nance starts doing all of this, like, you know, trying to be charitable. And then I started reading the about the author and we lost all sympathy for this guy. And so let me read you the about the author. Actually, yeah, Nance, how about you read the about the the, the about author here? George Steiner, author of dozens of books, including The Death of Tragedy, After Babel, Martin Heidegger, In Bluebeard's Castle, My Unwritten Books, George Steiner at The New Yorker, and The Poetry of Thought, is one of the world's foremost intellectuals. He has been Professor Emeritus of English and Comparative Literature at the University of Geneva, Professor of Comparative Literature, and Fellow at the University of Oxford, and Professor of Poetry at Harvard University. He lives in Cambridge where he has been an extraordinary fellow at Churchill College at the University of Cambridge since 1969. Yeah. 
So what? Sounds very impressive. One of the world's most foremost intellectuals. And for those who don't know, plebes like us, Professor Emeritus is not like, you know, that's not a little thing. That's a really big thing. It means that you have more academic freedom than a, than a tenured professor. More academic, more freedom to put together, to only teach the courses that you want to teach. Professors don't normally get that kind of freedom to only teach the courses they want to teach. And as a professor emeritus, you don't even have to teach in a lot of cases. They, they'll set you up with your office and access to all of the research stuff you want to do. Uh, and they'll suck your dick. But you don't have to really do a lot of things in a lot of cases to maintain that emeritus status. And so it's like this is tenure with a crown on, on your head, right? Like uh, – it's a very big honor. And so that honor being given to him, Nance started questioning the University of Geneva because we don't know anything about it. He started being like, this has to be like a Phoenix University kind of thing. And we looked it up and it's not. It's a prestigious Switzerland fucking, you know, uh, institution. And then uh, University of Oxford. I don't know if anybody ever heard of Oxford before. Have you ever, has anybody in the chat ever heard about Oxford <laughs> it's, Do they like specialize in like bulls and oxen? I, I'm not really sure what Oxford is, but uh, it sounds kind of important to me. I don't know. And then uh, same with Harvard. Harvard is kind of a weird word, but I think that that one I th I've heard of that one. I think that that one's at least like on the level of a state university. It's pretty prestigious. <laughs> I think Matt Damon went there. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think every every political elite with the exception of like 10% of them went to Harvard, Yale or Oxford or Princeton. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this guy is either, I don't know. I don't want to read into it. We, the, 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 the big kind of quilting point that the, the sort of the joke at the end of the whole thing was going back to, well, as Heidegger says, there is a regionality of evidence for different fields or subject matters. And this guy's criteria that he is judging by are poetic. He has poetic license. That's his background. The regionality of evidence this man is coming from is poetic. That's why he doesn't have to have footnotes. As opposed to Wolin, who is footnote heavy, giving you his sources. So for instance, this big question of how much like proto-Nazism was actually present in Heidegger's early thought. This is not this periodization of Heidegger is not something taken seriously enough by Wolin, but it is taken too seriously by some of the liberal defenders, right? But there is a grain of truth to saying that the proto-Nazi stuff is basically stuff that Churchill believed is basically stuff that FDR believed, that Nixon believed, right? It's not something we can isolate to Nazis, right? No, it's actually something indicative of Western expansionist, imperial, settler, colonial ideology in its bones. Like that is something that you have with Churchill, right? He called the Indian people parasites. He called them cockroaches. Um, he didn't consider them full humans. That's Churchill, 
right? And you better believe that Churchill thought that England was the, or, or, or Britain more broadly, is the, uh, the, the, the master race or the, 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 the vanguard of humanity, right? The, the, the liberal Churchillian kind of uh, spiritual racism said that white people have a burden to uplift and educate the savages, but to, we have to bring culture to the savages, right? There is a burden that comes from being in a developed society um, when people who do, are not literate want literacy and uh, clean water, and they know that you have it and don't care about them. And if you actually meet anyone from that society, from a society like that, you are going to feel some kind of a burden. But the racialization of that burden and turning it into the rationalization of imperial conquest is a whole other issue. That whole other issue is one that is assumed by liberals, communists, and fascists of this period. And so Heidegger is in his radical, critical period when he is in the 1920s. And he's developing what culminates in being in time. When I say it's a radical, critical period, I mean that it is bookended by radical, ideological, dogmatic commitments. On the prior to his critical period, he is a Catholic through and through. In his bones, he was, you know, considering the priesthood in the same way that Nietzsche was. And then in his uh, post-critical period, he's a Nazi. So... And then, and then he's a failed Nazi because they lose the war. And then he never apologizes, keeps his mouth silent, basically just says that the whole issue was technologization and framing, etc. And uh, never really faces up to anything. And if you read the Black Notebooks, you see not only is he not apologetic, but he also thinks that the Jews brought it on themselves by inventing racism. That he also thinks that the you know the Jews were the ones who were already um, on the attack because for him, uh, technologization and uh, Soviet communism was all world Jewry, right? You see this in his later work, but do you see it in his earlier work? Yeah, in proto form, in proto form. What does he say in 1916 to his fiance, Nance? That's when he is specifically complaining about the Jewification of our culture and our universities um, in a letter to his, his future wife. Um, that's pretty early. And it's, yeah. it's not, I mean, that's not explicit fascism, but it is a pattern. It is something that he sticks with and runs with, and it develops into uh, a totalized worldview. Yeah. So then why would we read him nonetheless if that is on the other end of if that's on the the early end of the 1920s if, if it's prior to the 1920s why would we still give a fuck why would we still read this for this course with everything that we've said well yeah you do you have something you want to say about that uh no i well yeah i i, I think it yeah it's baked in um to all the projects that follow and and you can't again you can't you can't do an end around you have to um the only there's no way out but through and right. i'm sure you have a better way to say what 
Well, a lot of people are going to say that Heidegger um, is inherently tainted. Uh, Bijou uh, is somebody who in the chat, who in the comment sections of some of my videos has been very loudly anti-Heidegger. Uh, and I'm in part sympathetic, but he takes it a little too far. And he's probably going to watch this. So hi, Bijou. I, I think you take it too far. And this is why. Because you say, well, he's he's inherently like a rotten thinker. Like his his insights are suspect. And my response is, whose aren't? Why are you reading philosophers that you don't think are inherently suspect? Why are you not suspicious of the thinkers that you read? And why aren't you suspicious of the ways that they get co-opted and used by power, by institutions? You think Marx isn't? You think that he's immune? Now, I'm not trying to say, oh, it's all sides are equally bad or blah, blah, blah. No, but also, insofar as you want to be able to understand continental philosophers who are working in the aftermath of Marx and Heidegger and Freud, you're not going to be able to know what they're doing without passing through these thinkers. More importantly, for anybody who's like, well, there are fundamental problems with the old left and there are fundamental problems with the new left. Are you only going to take critiques from the old and new left of itself or of each other? You know, read new left against old left, old left against new left, and that's it? That's not dialectical. The, the tendency is to think that the dialectical solution is to read the anarchist critiques of the Marxists, the Marxist critiques of the anarchists, the Sockdems critiques of the revolutionaries, the revolutionaries critiques of the reformists, and then we'll fuse together synthetically, dialectics of synthesis, fuse together a new worldview, right? Yeah, but this is not dialectical. That's Fichtean dialectics where, he where Hegel says that it's the night where all cows are black. That's how Hegel characterizes this fusionist synthetic dialectics of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, as opposed to big-brained based dialectics being dialectics of contradiction, where there are ir irresolvable contradictions that cannot be sublated without first working through those contradictions in a multi-perspectival approach, right? We have to look at it from different positions. So does that mean we have to read everybody? Does that mean I have to go listen to all Rush Limbaugh and watch all Tucker and and do all MSNBC and CNN and Fox News just to come to some kind of a base position? No, no, because we only have so much time and energy. And so we don't want to waste our time lowering ourselves. Um, yeah, of course, there's, there is something of value to come from looking at any pop culture critic or uh, ideologue, influencer, spokesperson, leader, uh, bestseller, uh, best podcast, whatever it is. It's like it's got inherent value as it does have cultural influence and you want to understand like what about this is working for people and what's 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 going on with it at a deeper level. You know, you want to be able to figure out those kinds of things. But having limited time and energy, if you're coming into theory because you're disillusioned with all of the current possibilities on offer politically and you're kind of realizing you bought a fake bill of goods that you had bought into some liberal leftist fusionist progressive big other that was consumeristic and not actual – had no real possibility of 
changing anything. If you're coming into theory trying to figure out why failure is cooked into everything that you had taken for granted, you have to work through the contradictions. That's why Nance said tarrying with the negative. Well, who's going to who, who's worth investing a lot of time and energy into? Look, you got to focus on people who have the most radical, the most profound, the most distinct, original, fresh critique and perspective on the situation that is opposed to your own. Right? Now, you can read Kulikowski and Maddock and uh, Bender and Heinrich and all of these other Marxists who became critical of worldview Marxism. But I'm sorry, you're not going hard enough if you're also not going to take into account contradictions that are outside the scope of the left. It's just not, it's not going to work. The, I think platypus is a good example of this. I, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot is platypus thinks that there's a little bit of truth in every one of these perspectives on the left. They all disagree with one another. And the point is, is to, to bring those contradictions out into the open, work through them, and we come to something new because there's a lot of these, there's truth in every position. But that's just for the left. Do you see what's happening there? Okay. We're saying, no, Nietzsche and Heidegger, you actually have to use them as the, as the, the major um, uh, critics of 19th and 20th century socialism. Okay, anything else we want to touch on before we uh, close this thing out, uh, Nance? No. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of minutiae and stuff that we're going to clarify, hopefully, today. Um, well, I guess we have other to than kind that, of, yeah. we basically have to tell people about what we're doing today, what we did three days ago, and uh, what we're doing on June 3rd. And so starting out, we did an 11 hour and what, 49 minute, 49. yeah, 11 hour and 49 minute stream, which is up on the screen here. You can see what I'm talking about for yourself. Um, we did it unlisted because we listened to the first half of the Woolen book, Heidegger and Ruins. Uh, we listened to it from Audible. That shit's copyrighted, so I'm not trying to get in trouble with it or whatever. Um, and it's also just like this this big thing, and we didn't want to do it live. So uh, we took our time. We paused. We talked things through. And it, in a sort of way, even though I promote the idea of we do, we should read Heidegger taking him at his word with being in time where we where he, it's critical it's deconstructive it's not propaganda it's not ideology we shouldn't be looking under every signifier saying is this where the nazism's hiding we should read him on his own terms when it's the first reading the first reading is not a hermeneutic reading the first reading is not a critical reading the first reading is getting the lay of the land the second reading is seeing if you can put it in your own words the third reading is running it up against everything you know and doing it critically i've done the third reading and therefore i did this extra work so that i can tell you all look i am responsible i am thinking about these questions i have put a lot of work into this and i can tell you where the nazism the proto-nazism is hiding under various signifiers but it's not that's not going to be the point of emphasis when we read being in time this year this whole conversation is to kind of just let people know that we don't have like this downplay dismiss 
obfuscate and do apologetics kind of approach. We're not doing that. That's not what I'm doing with my lectures in any way, shape or form. But we do have a we are going for the my goal is to help people with their first reading, which is not really the critical one. The critical stuff as far as like the the politics is all going to be supplementary material. Most of it's going to be unlisted, not public. It's only available to people who are in this course. And the only people in this course who are going to watch it are going to be the people who have the time for it, who are interested in it. And there will be people who are taking this course who never see or hear me talk about this issue because it's not the main through line for access to being in time, for unlocking being in time. This is not the key to unlocking it. But with that said as my disclaimer, I do think this 11-hour, 49-minute stream is a nice introduction for people where the question of his politics is going to get in the way of reading the book, right? This is where you get your, this is where you get your questions answered. And we talked about timestamping a lot at the beginning because if you don't timestamp stuff, it makes it really hard for us to go back over it later. And, and tease out uh, and like say record, clip and release, clip and ship those sections that are most pertinent to other people. I want eyes on screen. So check it out. You see right here at the top of the comments, it says four comments. Well, where's Adam's comments? Adam did say stuff. You got to click sort by and then go to newest first because this is a new bug with one of the recent updates on YouTube. Okay, they'll get it fixed eventually, but for right now, you actually have to click that, and now you can see stuff that you couldn't see before. I've had people say, why are my comments disappearing? Dave, are you blocking my stuff? No, it was actually, obviously some comments get withheld because the, the bots think maybe this is, you know, whatever, bad, or it's a link or something like that. But no, uh, if, you, if you're not seeing your new comments show up, you just have to sort by newest comments. And I want to draw your attention to the fact that Adam did something amazing. What did he do, Nance? He went through and listened to, and you can tell he actually did listen because he repeats things that we said and, and calls out specific things from the text. And he, and he put notes in there. So people listening in the future have uh, something of a guidebook. Um, to to see where the roadside attractions are, because that's a fucking lot of work, man. Twelve hours of this is a lot. It's um, way too much. Yeah, so he he put up some signposts um, for people uh, who are actually trying to learn along and read along and think along, um, and they're just displaced in time. Dude, I just I just went to the Theory Underground homepage and it started automatically playing our stream from right now. I couldn't get it to do that before, but I'm glad it's working now. So that's fucking badass that it's auto playing our live stream. That was what I was hoping. I was hoping I could make it so that whenever I go live, people are on the Theory Underground site. It just starts playing automatically. It is working. But the reason I brought it up is directly connected to what Nance just said. And if you scroll down, you'll see Adam earned the Praxis achievement called Timestamper 1. And so it says right here, you did not just timestamp a live stream, you made a table of contents with timestamps. This is an amazing resource for others, dot, dot, dot. Let's read more. I want to actually read what it says. Um, 
this is an amazing resource to others who are looking for a specific section of the lecture or conversation, but it is also a way to, of taking notes actively while going over some content. That means you are you are not just passively consuming, you are actively engaged in a way that helps others. That is the definition of praxis. So fucking badass, Adam. I know that nobody sneers or takes less seriously um, achievements than Adam. He's not achievement motivated, but uh, nevertheless, he's the one with the most achievements at Theory Underground. And uh, in the last For They Don't Know What They Do lecture, he actually makes fun of achievements and says the funniest thing ever. He says that it's like Girl Scouts. He said, he said, well, we should just be like the Girl Scouts and wear real pins on our, on our vests. And then I made this thumbnail where he's, he's dressed up like a Girl Scout and he's got a bunch of his achievements over his shirt. So <laughs> it's, it's just like my favorite meme now is, is Nance, the, the achievement king of everybody hates fucking achievements. And I think that that's the, that's, that's the way it should be. And and I think he's always going to have more than anyone else because he is doing things that no one is doing. Exactly. And we, most of the achievements we make are actually based on his, his, his activity, him doing things that we're like, well, that's admirable. So then we make an achievement against his will and, uh, he begrudgingly goes along with it. And so Adam, I think you're a good sport. So far, <laughs> you've been a good sport about this. I appreciate you letting me use this image in this thumbnail. And uh, it's what you did here with these timestamps is an absolute resource. I want to give everybody two quick uh, tips about timestamping. Let's just say that uh, in this video, you're 23 minutes in and 51 seconds at the point that somebody says something that you want to, you want to share exactly where it begins okay there's two things that you need to know one is if you want to share the url with that beginning you can't do this from the phone sadly at least not from the android app but you can click share and you go to this little box right here and you click start at whatever the time is and that boom now you can just copy that url and share it directly to a friend the other thing is you can go into the comments right here and say what was it what was the number i said whatever it doesn't matter let's say 23 minutes 51 seconds and then you say this is where nance said i would rather not do this and then boom you, you i mean i'm just making stuff up now but that will create this hyperlink that if people click on it, it takes them to a specific video. And I know a lot of you are like, I fucking know this, Dave. It's redundant information. I don't need this. I know. I know you think that. But there's a lot of people in my audience who are not super internet people. A lot of people in my audience who came to this through other means and they're not YouTubers or in the milieu of of YouTube. And so when they get my shit and they're like, what is a timestamp? I honor that because, uh, I don't want to just call them boomers. They're not. The fact is, is you don't know till you know. So timestamps now, you know, and from now on, um, we're going to say clip it and ship it whenever the, whenever we think that what, what was just said needs to be clipped and shipped. Um, and then if you were 
you're trying to do some praxis, you can always pull up the transcript. I'm gonna show you all how to do the transcript. It's these three dots right here. You click on that, click show transcript, and then you can word search through there. Uh, and Adam had suggested that we use the word timestamp, but we don't want to we don't we don't want to say that up front and 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 for I, I've been saying clip it and ship it for a long time. But if you did, for instance, ty type the word timestamp into if you clicked control F and then you clicked timestamp or type timestamp in there and clicked enter, it will start taking you through the actual transcript of where we said timestamp. And then you see right here at 1813, it says after the timestamp, that's a perfect format. It's the most useful to other people. Okay, let's click on it. It takes us right to that point in the video. Timestamp. That's a perfect format. It's the most useful to other people. That makes it praxis. With that said, see? Okay. So uh, for future um, reference uh, in the stream that we're going to do today, which is going to be a very long one because we're going to finish out the Heidegger and Ruins book, uh, at the end of sections that we think should probably be clipped and shipped, we'll just say clip it and ship it. And so you probably want to search clip it. And then... Uh, that makes it so that we can cut out the copyrighted material and keep the stuff that we're saying um, for the public side. Because right now, as I was saying, this video that I'm showing on the screen right here, the the 11 and 49, the 11 hour 49 minute stream that Nance and I did three days ago, that's not publicly available. But you can still have access to it if you DM us on Theory Underground. So if you've never created a, an account on Theory Underground, you'll want to get on that. Um, and once you've got the account set up, just uh, click on your profile picture, uh, go to members, add Nance and I, I'm David McCarriker, he's Bryce Nance, add us as connections on Theory Underground, and then you can DM either of us um, and just say, hey, can I get the link for that crazy marathon stream you both did on Heidegger's Nazism? Yeah, it's part one. Today we're doing part two. If you want access to part two, you'll have to ask for the link. We're not sending that out via email. We're not putting that out on the public side of the channel. Um, and if you don't have the time or energy for that, just stay tuned and know in your heart of hearts, eventually you'll be able to see some of the best clips of that. It'll eventually happen. Uh, I don't know when. But if you uh, if you don't want to wait, you can just catch up at 2x. It's only going to be less than six hours if you listen to it at 2x tomorrow. And I don't think, well, we might actually speed up the audiobook. So maybe if you do like 1.5, that still will be like seven and a half or eight hours or something. But yeah, doing yard work, doing dishes, working on the car, truck working out whatever it is we all do have time where we can listen um so yeah everybody has large blocks of time that they can listen if they know how to multitask by listening to books while working doing chores doing other kinds of things skateboarding in nance's case and in all of these you know examples of, of things where you can listen being in traffic whatever um something that's 12 hours long if you're double speeding it's only six hours long and we are condensing so much information and, and then we we di we help digest it so i mean really it's a season-long 
It's a season long. It's a podcast. It's like a season long, all in one stream. And so the continuity and energy and momentum and topics and threads and everything, it's integrally all there in a way that it wouldn't have been so holistically had we done, you know, 14 episodes over the course of three months and burnt ourselves out. Right. So it's funny that doing something in like this long form is actually it's I kind of like it more than doing. Can, can you imagine, Nance, if we had to like, OK, let's start a podcast where we talk about this and we're going to meet every week or every other week or two times a week. And then we have to it, all the scheduling and all the bullshit we've we've dispensed with that entirely. Yeah, this presents way better ways to to utilize your own dead labor. Um and yeah, be productive like over blocks of time. Like this lives into the future from this point on. Um, right. It's awesome. And it's inherently useful to, to me for my own um, going back over it again in the future. Uh, and it's also hopefully going to be for other people as well. But with all of that said, I said that we were going to talk about what we did what we're doing and then what's happening on June 3rd. We've officially talked about what we did, what we're doing, because uh, today we're continuing the stream. But what we're doing on June 3rd is kicking off being in time, the actual course. And so these pre-course materials that I've been putting out are about to come to an end. People who just follow the YouTube are not going to see me saying much about being in time because I'm going to be in the background doing lectures on being in time and whatever I do on the foreground of the YouTube, it's going to be other stuff probably. Um, so you've kind of had your chance. I've kind of been putting stuff out for a month uh, on this topic and uh, if that wasn't enough to make you think that right now is the time to jump into reading being in time, then I don't know what will. I'm not that interested in trying to get people who are only kind of interested to do it. I'm only interested in reading this with a handful of people who get the necessity of it and are willing to roll up their sleeves and actually wrestle with it in a very serious way. I want the, uh, the mediocre applesauce people to get the fuck out. And so we're about to go hard as shit. And so if all of this is like overwhelming and makes you want to curl up in, a, in, in the bed and cry, um, I'll give you a little binky and a pat on the back and maybe like a warm a warm pillow, but like, I'm not gonna, I, the hand holding is over. Like the, the, now we're getting into it on June 3rd. But with all that said, I also feel like crawling up into a circle and crying. Um, when I think about all the stuff that there is to read and I don't, I feel torn between all these things and I, can, I can't make a, de a decision or commit or dive in on the deep end. Um, and people are saying X, Y, and Z thing is important. And I'm just like, but why? And I don't want to. Um, so I get it. That's, that's really just what I talk about in my forthcoming book as time, energy, fragility, right? That's, that's what that is. You just don't have the time energy for it. And, but at the same time, you make the time energy for the things that are worthwhile and that you that you truly realize are pure necessity, like showing up to work is pure necessity. OK, but if you think that the life of the mind is as necessary or more necessary than selling all of your time energy as labor power and you think that cultivating your life of the mind is actually as important, if not more, more important than work, then you're going to have your priorities straight. And you're going to want to dive into this. I do have friends who have d dived into this and they're not going to be a part of this. I've got people who want to dive into this and they're not going to be able to. Um, and don't worry, folks, I've got good news for you. 
this summer cohort is really just preparation for a course that will be available on demand in the future. So if, if you're not going to be a part of this cohort, there will be future cohorts or you'll be able to binge it all once there are assessment accountability and incentive structures for the uh, on-demand content set up on the site. Um, and then, so you, the natural question, if you're interested in any of this, is what uh, Tiago Books said in on my Instagram. He said, what's the pace of the course? I assume X amount of reading is required per week to get everyone up to speed, and then those sections are explained and discussed? Exactly. That is exactly the structure. Um, so I said roughly one chapter per week with two of the biggest chapters broken up into halves per week. Starts on June 3rd and Division 1 ends July 22nd. Then we take a month off and do Division 2 from August till the end of October. Uh, the most important thing you need to know about that is that if you purchase access to the course, there are four tiers of involvement, but all four of them include all of Division one and Division two, plus the pre-course content, plus any guest lectures that you get to meet by being in the course. Anything you want to add from the student side or the, I guess, research cohort participant side of things, Nance, as far as like the structure of the course or anything like that? Um, no, other than just like it, buckle up. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Like it's going to take a lot. Um, I know personally it's going to take a lot out of me, but I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, and I do hope to see, um, like, I'm, I'm very excited that uh, the people that are already signed up to take it are. Um, and, yeah, like, I, I know that I'm going to need to leech on other people's energy for this. Yeah. Uh, and I, I hope it kind of becomes symbiotic in some way. Sick. Hundred um, percent. And finally, everybody saw this image on the screen. If they had eyes on screen at the beginning of the stream, and so for the folks who are listening from the podcast side, because this will be posted to the Theory Underground podcast, um, which is available on Spotify as well as every other app that has podcasting. Check it out. It says uh, it shows Anne laying there, re uh, reading, being in time, but she's looking over at the camera. And she looks pretty based. She's got her sunglasses on her stomach. You can see she's wearing a, a fanny pack. So as Mihao and Poland said, street cred, street cred, nice pick, nice fanny pack. And then you can also see her new tattoo there of a mountain over a lake. Uh, she's got a, a ring on her finger, um, which uh, symbolically links up to mine. And then in the background, you can actually see like a like a van or like a, a motorhome made out of Lego and it's got a couple of characters on the top of it but it's blurry and these are things that you probably wouldn't have noticed if you were just looking at the photo earlier and but I but I'm, I'm giving it to you all because like I said for the people who don't have eyes on screen that motorhome the Lego characters on top of it one is a redhead woman and the other is a brunette guy and they have a little baby and so we we got this for ourselves for christmas this lego set and then we built it together because uh, we're getting ready for a nationwide tour and uh we do aim to have uh, a, a couple of kids someday and uh, the other baby in the picture which you can't really make out is grogu from a different lego set so street cred indeed oh mihao's literally in the chat right now shout out man shout out my man um but then the other three images in this series, if you click advance on the Instagram or swipe to the, the, the left here, you'll see Anne making a, 
like a, oh my God, this is profound face as she looks into the book. And then what would you call this face, Nance? How would you even characterize this third picture? Uh, ecstasy and horror, maybe? Or may- maybe that's coming next. Maybe this is just like my brain is jello. Yeah, either her brain's jello or she's going crazy. And then the fourth one is zoomed in pretty close. This is some this is some like this is some some Tim and Eric style humor right here. Um, and she's just like, Duh. and so anyway, that's, that's Anne being the performer, the dramatist that she is. She's got skills in this regard. And so she brings light and laughter to me, to my life every day. And the, the caption of this image or these, the series of images is Anne getting ready for the course launch on June 3rd. The photo is an odd combo because she makes me laugh every day, but this book is terrifyingly difficult, problematic, and profound. Enroll today at Theory Underground, theory-underground.com forward slash courses forward slash B and percent, the symbol for and T. And there you go, everybody. I think that's everything that we had to talk about. Um, I'm about to roll the PSA. Say your last words, Nance. Keep it real. Yeah, we'll catch you all on the flip side. And uh, (laughs) what I'm about to roll here, this PSA is still mostly accurate. The only thing is that the, the, uh, the, the critical media theory, the digital literacy and critical media theory course doesn't actually begin until, uh, the second Sunday of June. So, uh, it says that it was beginning the second Sunday of May, but we postponed it by one month. Yeah. What were you going to say there, Nance? No. Yeah. That's, um, I keep forgetting about that one too. Well, I, I missed the first meeting of that one cause I thought it was at a different time. That was more like the pre-meeting where we all agreed to postpone it. So you didn't miss too much. Yeah. You didn't miss too much. And you still got to be there for the Andrew McLuhan bit. So that was good. All right. Adam's about to go run some intellectual circles and, uh, everybody, secret agent, Dan, Adam, Salamoon. If you want to continue with us, DM us on theory underground for the link. Everybody else. And now a quick message from our sponsors. Just kidding. This will be neither quick nor from any corporate or state sponsorship. What follows is a description of Theory Underground, a thank you to its patrons, information about the upcoming tour, and three brand new courses that you might want to enroll in. Stay for the whole thing to get promo codes to save on those courses or information about the financial aid scholarship. Theory Underground is a philosophy lecture course gated social media site and publishing house by and for working class intellectuals and renegade academics. The subject matters dealt with at Theory Underground are the most important, yet neglected, for understanding ourselves, the world, and ways of possibly changing it. Because we have no corporate or state sponsors, only a small band of patrons, everything in this first year of operation helps immensely. Special thank yous to Bert, Nance, Marilyn, Carl, and Adam for your help in the $50 per month patron tier. If you want to help but the $50 tier is too much, Consider donating towards meals and gasoline via Venmo or PayPal. The gasoline is for our countrywide tour of the U.S. 
where we aim to meet with supporters of this effort and do events to draw in new people who do not necessarily belong to marketing demographics predetermined by the attention economy. We will be giving lectures, leading discussions, and promoting several brand new books. Our goal is to only go to towns and cities where we have personal invitations from at least one person. We are doing this underground style, which for the hardcore punk scene in the US meant coming for long enough to get to know the area and do multiple events, not this modern treadmill of a new city each night in an attempt to maximize fame and profit. If you are interested in being a host, guide, or volunteer, then please fill out the form at https colon forward slash forward slash theory hyphen underground.com forward slash us hyphen tour hyphen 2023. In an attempt to utilize the resources made publicly available, we will be using libraries for most of our events. So if you have a local library card and can reserve a space for us, we would most appreciate it. Alternatively, some of you might have access to pretty epic venue spaces. Just let us know ahead of time. Now for the courses. The three upcoming courses are What is Sex, Digital Literacy and CMT, Critical Media Theory, and Being in Time. All courses at Theory Underground are available after the fact on demand, but some people get a lot more out of doing it live with a cohort. If you are looking to think deeply about the devices we have become reliant on while experimenting with new ways of reclaiming your attention span and relationship with yourself and others, then check out Digital Literacy and Critical Media Theory, a course that is structured to combat the attention economy while strategically using some of its tools to help us gain a freer relationship to our devices. If interested, an introduction to this course will be shared at the end of this video. Just make sure to click on it. The lectures for this course take place on the second Sunday of every month for six months, starting in May. If you sign up at tier three, you also get access to the recovery group component, which also meets once per month. Enroll with promo code CMTEARLYBIRDYT before May 13th for 20% off. If you are frustrated by the discourse revolving around gender ideology, left and right, then join us in thinking deeper about sex. Cadell Last of Philosophy Portal is joining up with Theory Underground to teach Alenka Zupanchik's What is Sex? One of the most succinct and cutting edge works of theory dealing with the topic. Zupanchik is one of the Slovenian circle's most incisive critics of both naive progressivism and reactionary tendencies when it comes to thinking about the relationship between sex, culture, and subjectivity. If interested, watch Three Reasons to Read What is Sex, which will be shared on screen at the end of this video. What is Sex begins in May and goes through June, meeting for four lecture sessions and, surprise, you will actually get to meet Alenka Zupanchik herself. Use promo code WHATISSEXEARLYBIRDYT before May 7th for 20% off. And just so you know, everybody, don't stress the capitalization. I just make it that way so it's more readable. It's not case sensitive. Being in Time is one of the most notorious, profound, and difficult works of philosophy from the last 200 years. Its deconstruction of modernity and fundamental challenge to scientism is a prerequisite rite of passage for any thinker who wants to seriously engage with continental philosophy, social theory, or world change. In this course, you will learn about what Heidegger means by being, being in the world, Dasein, being unto death, and so many other crucial developments. But more important than all these buzzwords is just 
taking on this work itself and wrestling with the text. Doing so will rapidly accelerate your reading comprehension abilities and simultaneously challenge some of your most deep-seated presuppositions. As before, an introductory video to this course is shared on the end screen of this video or can be accessed from the links in the description. Being in Time Division 1 starts in June and ends July 22nd. Division 2 begins August 19th and goes through October. To sign up for Division 1 today, use the promo code BEINGINTIMEEARLYBIRDYT before the end of May for 20% off. If you feel obstructed by the cost of these courses, then we have good news. But before getting into the financial aid info, why are there even price tags at all, much less tiered pricing? Because one to audit, whereas others want constructive critical feedback or even one-on-one -on -one sessions. The tiers exist so that you can get the value you are seeking while compensating me, Dave, fairly for the time and energy required. Second, the prices set for these courses aim to make Theory Underground sustainable, meaning that it will bring in enough to pay for the costs of the operation, including my personal bills since I want to be a co-earner in the household when my soon-to-be wife and I start a family. <laughs> Thirdly, <laughs> Thirdly, People tend to take the things they pay for more seriously, and we want you to get the most out of this experience. With those reasons aside, we do not seek to exclude anyone who is struggling just to get by. We have a financial aid scholarship option for people who are currently between jobs or who live in a country on a cheap currency, like many of you who watch from Thailand, India, Mexico, or Poland, to name a few of the residents of some of the people who have already received financial aid scholarships in the last couple of months. Because I know what trying to study theory under the stresses of housing insecurity and poverty is like, the scholarship was set up during the first month of operation. Simply fill it out at https colon forward slash forward slash theory hyphen underground dot com forward slash scholarship. Last but not least, stay tuned for the Theory Underground app coming soon to an app store near you on your phone. Yeah, and seriously, thank you for listening or watching to this point. And uh, yeah. Thanks. We look forward to taking these courses with you. Bye.